Amen. Christ is sure and steady anchor for people with feeble faith, doubts, and sins. It's one of my favorites, so thank you guys for playing that and indulging me this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, I see some new faces. My name is Zach. I was the youth minister here. had the privilege of being here for uh, five and a half great years. My wife and I did. Uh, it's good to see old faces, and it's really good to see new faces and see the way the church has grown. Uh, it is kind of an out-of-body experience this morning. I came in, and Christy Gentry had already made the coffee. Didn't have to touch it. Didn't have to unlock a single door, touch a thermostat. It was really strange. But it was even weirder sitting on the third row instead of the first row and seeing one of my best friends up here leading worship. Uh, We're so, so excited for the Brysons to get to enjoy a rich fellowship that we got to enjoy for so long. And we're excited for you guys because you have a real blessing in them. And so it's great to great to be with you, great to be with our friends here. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, Matthew chapter 13. At our, uh, at our church in Tuscaloosa, we've been going through a series uh, looking at the book of Isaiah. And if you're unfamiliar, the book of Isaiah is uh, one of what we call the major prophets. It's a book that details the ministry of one of God's prophets to Israel in the Old Testament. And one of the major themes in Isaiah is this promise of a Messiah that would come. Uh, a savior who would be Israel's true king, one who would usher in a kingdom. And this kingdom would be marked by salvation, intimacy with God, joyful obedience to his commands, peace with one another, and peace even with creation at large. And centuries went by and this king never came. His kingdom remained at a distance. And under the oppression of Rome, hope was waning. And then we get to Matthew's gospel, and Jesus shows up on the scene, and he is preaching a very simple message that you'll wish my sermon was as short by the time we get done. His message was, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is near. Some of your translations may say the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus was making it clear when he comes onto the scene that he was not just another prophet in a long line of prophets. Nor was he another king like all the other kings. He was making it clear that he was coming to usher in this long-awaited kingdom, that he was the promised Messiah. And because he had drawn near, because he had come to earth, he had brought the kingdom to bear. In other words, his kingdom had now broken into our reality. The problem for his hearers and the problem for us is that this kingdom does not look like we think it would look. It doesn't come the way we think it would, and it doesn't look like we assume it would as it grows and advances. And so what Jesus did was he began to teach in parables, trying to teach his disciples, his followers, things about the nature of the kingdom. And we're going to look at two of those parables today where Jesus explains something about his kingdom. If you would, let's stand and honor the reading of God's word from Matthew 13. Verses 44 through 46. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Jesus says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. And in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
Let's pray and ask his help in understanding and applying it. Lord Jesus, your words give life. Lord, we confess our need even now for your Holy Spirit to come and teach us, to come and show us who you are, what your kingdom is like. And we pray that as we go through this parable, we would respond to you and to the message of your kingdom like these two individuals, willingly letting go of all else in order to have it for ourselves. We pray it in your name. Amen. And you may be seated. So I came across an article uh, a couple of weeks ago in the Smithsonian Magazine. And apparently back in 2017, there was an estate sale that took place in a small town of Watertown, Connecticut. And it was nothing extraordinary. Maybe you've been to estate sales like this, but typically they take place when either someone is, uh, has died or has transitioned into some kind of assisted living arrangement. But the goal is always to just liquidate the estate and pay for bills, right? And so in this case, the homeowner had passed away, and so the family held an estate sale to clean out the home and a large barn out back. And it turns out the owner of the estate had been a painter, and he had painted for decades, and this barn was just stuffed full of paintings. And as the estate sale wore on, apparently it didn't go quite as they had planned. It didn't sell like they had planned, and so the family had to make the tough choice at the end of the day. We have nowhere to put hundreds of paintings, so they threw them into a dumpster. And a local mechanic named Jared Whipple, he heard there was a dumpster full of artwork someone told him about. So he goes and he finds this dumpster. And he said, I looked into the dumpster and I found hundreds of paintings. And he said it was gut-wrenching to watch someone's life of art just thrown into a dumpster. And so he talked to the family. He said, hey, can I, can I have some of these? And they said, sure, take whatever you want. We'd love to see them put to some good use. And so he, uh, he owned a small business and thought, well... I can maybe hang some of the less weird paintings in my office there. And then uh, some of the others, um, you know, maybe I can use them as Halloween decorations. True story. All right. So he takes these paintings. And as he begins to examine the paintings, he wasn't much of an artist himself. But he begins to notice that this wasn't someone who was just hobby painting. This was someone who had some serious skills, some technique went into this. And so he began to go around to art exhibits and ask about this painter. He began to ask about the painter himself and his technique, and the, the man's name was Francis Matson Hines. And so he goes around, he begins showing a couple of these paintings, and he finally finds out that this was someone who knew what they were doing. And in fact, this painter uh, was what they call an abstract expressionist. I don't know much about paintings, as you can imagine, but he was an abstract expressionist. But what made his paintings unique was that he actually would lay physical objects onto the canvas and actually paint them into the canvas, and what Jared Whipple found as he began to show these paintings off was not only was this guy really good at what he did, but this was a highly sought-after uh, style of painting. So valuable, in fact, so sought-after were these paintings that they are worth millions of dollars because of the style this man employed. The painter never made into the mainstream, but people wanted his style of paintings. The article said this, said, For Whipple, the artwork once consigned to the trash is a real treasure, one that put his life on a new path. See, he was just going about his day, doing little more than dumpster diving after an uneventful estate sale, and he stumbled upon a treasure that changed everything for him, so much so that he quit his job as a mechanic and now travels around showing these paintings at art shows, making quite a bit of money, probably more than he made as a mechanic. And here in Matthew 13, Jesus gives us a parable about two individuals in a similar situation. The man in the first parable was someone walking through a field, again, fairly normal day for him, and he stumbles upon a treasure, and upon finding it, 
He proceeds to cover it back up, and he goes and he liquidates his estate, sells everything that he has in order to buy the field and have the treasure. And then the second, Jesus talks about a pearl merchant, someone who is in search of fine pearls. And he's in search of these great pearls, and he had probably collected many, but then he comes to one great pearl and says, this is the one I've got to have. And he sells all the other pearls and has this one. And so what we're going to see today, even just in three verses, there's a lot here. And so here's our roadmap for this morning. Here's what we're covering. First, we're going to try and define the kingdom. We need to know exactly what it is. Second, we're going to look at what it means to count the cost. What must be given up if we're going to make this treasure our own? And then third, we're going to see what it looks like to joyfully receive this king and his kingdom. So let's start at that first point, defining the kingdom. If someone were to approach you in the gathering room after church and they were to say, how, like, what is the kingdom of God? I've been reading through the Gospels for the first time, and this phrase, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, comes up. What is that? If someone were to ask you that, I wonder what you would say. What, what is the definition that comes to mind? The reality is, right, we, we, we hear those phrases, we've read them in Scripture, but a lot of times defining the kingdom of God is a little bit tricky. In fact, R.C. Sproul said that if you ask 500 theologians, you would have 500 different definitions of what the kingdom is. Now, on a very general level, we know that a kingdom is a place where the king reigns, right? And so because God created the world, he therefore owns the world and rules over the whole world. So we could say, very generally speaking, that God's kingdom is the universe. Everything that he created, that's his domain. That's where his rule is realized. But if that was all that Jesus was talking about, I don't think that he would have said that he had now brought this kingdom to bear. That, right, because Jesus is saying, I have now brought this kingdom at hand, there's something else more that Jesus is getting at. And so here's a very simple definition that I think works for that question. What is the kingdom? If you went through uh, Theology 101 with Kevin last fall, if you were here then, we talked a lot about the kingdom, what it is. And this is that definition again. The kingdom of God is, the, is God's people under God's rule. The kingdom of God is simply God's people under his rule. Now, let's take that definition for a test drive. Let's try it on in Scripture and see if that works. Think for a second about Adam and Eve. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2, they were God's original people, right? They were made in his image, and they existed under his rule. In fact, they were only given one command, one prohibition, and that was do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Obedience would have led to life. Disobedience would result in death. And the result, as we know, was disobedience. And because Adam functioned by God's design, because Adam functioned as a representative for all of humanity, when Adam fell, we fell. All of humanity fell with him and was plunged into spiritual darkness. And what this did was this effectively transferred every single human being from the kingdom of God as we were created to live into the kingdom of darkness ruled by sin and death. So no longer does humanity submit to God's loving reign. Our own desires are what we most naturally worship now and Satan has a field day with it. And if you want proof of that, look around us. This is the result of the fall. This is the reality that we live in. This is life outside of God's kingdom. And it all began with Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden there in Genesis 3, all those years ago. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. 
if you read through the Old Testament, and I encourage you to do this, the rest of Scripture reveals to us the intentional, progressive movement of God that despite the sin of his people, God was fiercely committed to reestablishing his kingdom on the earth, to have a people for his own possession who would joyfully worship and obey him. And so God consistently reveals more of himself to his people. He gives them his law. He gives them the prophets, the priests, continually pours out his mercy and his care on them, and yet they continued to rebel. And so in Ezekiel 36, God describes what must be done for his kingdom to come and be realized. This is what he says. God says, I will have to come and sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, for God's kingdom to come, two things had to happen that we were incapable of doing for ourselves. Number one, sins had to be forgiven. There was a price that had to be paid for the sins that we've committed. And so Jesus had to come and pay that. But the second thing was that we had to be filled with his spirit. And logically, this makes sense, right? If, if you and I simply received forgiveness from God, if, if the message of the gospel was you have now been forgiven, your record has been washed clean. The problem is, is that that record would be blemished again by dinner. If we're honest, it's probably going to be blemished by the time we get done with lunch, right? We, we need God's Spirit inside of us so that we long to obey God, so that we're able to obey God fully. We didn't need Jesus to just simply eliminate our sin. We need Him to give us new hearts that wanted to obey. And no ordinary king could do this. And that's why Isaiah and so many others prophesied of a king to come. Jesus alone, being fully God and fully man, could truly atone for sin and give us His Spirit. And so how does this king come to bear? How is it realized? The kingdom comes as people receive the king, right? As people trust Jesus alone for their salvation, their sins are forgiven, they are filled with the Spirit, and the kingdom of God continues to break into the darkness of the kingdom we live in currently. And because of Jesus, we are now truly the people of God living under the rule of God. Now, what do we receive in this kingdom that makes it so valuable? This is how the kingdom comes. What about it is so valuable? What about it is like a pearl or a hidden treasure? Here are just a few benefits that Scripture gives us. We get justification. It's a big fancy Bible word, right? But justification simply means that our sins have been forgiven, right? Uh, the, the record of debt against us has been removed. We get adoption as sons of the king, Guys, our position in the kingdom is not one of servants. We're not second-class citizens. When God brings us into the kingdom, he calls us sons and daughters. We get sanctification. If you're fed up with your sin, you'll know one of the values of the kingdom is that when we exist under God's rule as his people, we have the promise that as we walk with Jesus, we will continually look more like him. We get glorification. Promise that one day our faith is going to be turned to sight, that we will exist in eternity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And we will not just stay in heaven. We will actually come and reign on the earth again. We get resurrection. Death does not get the final word over God's people. 
God will bring us body and soul through death and into eternal life. And this is some of the benefits that we get of the kingdom. And as incredible as they are, they're actually downstream of the real prize. They're not the real treasure. If you were to ask me, Zach, what do you love about being married? And I begin to say, well, you know, I love the fact that she does laundry. It's a huge, huge help. Real, real benefit. Uh, And man, when she cooks dinner, it's really good. And I love the fact that when we do laundry, I don't have to fold all the clothes. We split that. Uh, You know, and I can start listing all these benefits of being married out. And I hope that would be a little weird for you, right? Because the real prize in being married is not having tasks accomplished around the house, as great as those are. The real prize in marriage is that I get her. She's the treasure. All those benefits are downstream from that. And the same is true in the kingdom. As great as justification and sanctification and glorification and resurrection, as great as all those things are, they are downstream from the real treasure, which is that we get the king himself. We get Christ. And scripture says that we are in Christ and Christ is in God. We get God himself. We get to know him. Think about the privilege of prayer in that. As Steve mentioned Prayer time that happens twice a week. We get to talk to God. And he longs to speak to us and hear from us. We get to walk with him. We get to spend an eternity basking in his glory. Wading into an increasing knowledge of his love for us in Christ. And here now we have some taste of this. But one day we're going to experience it in full. This kingdom is already. It's here. But there's also a not yet element. It will be realized in full. But friends, this is the treasure. This is the kingdom of God, the pearl beyond price. So now let's look at this second point, which is counting the cost. If you look back at these parables for a moment, in the first, there was a man walking through a field, as we said, and he stumbled upon a treasure. Now, that's a realistic scenario in Jesus' day. There was no banking system. In the ancient world. And so if you had valuables. Especially with the threat of wars and raids and things like that. You would take your your valuables. And you would bury them in jars or pots. Out in an undisclosed location. That only you know where they were. And so apparently this had happened. And somehow the location of this treasure had been forgotten. The field changes hands. And so this man stumbles upon this treasure. That had become unearthed. And he realizes. "I, I need to have this for myself. Right? So he... He quickly covers it up so nobody else would see it. He goes and sells everything he has, which I'm sure looked ridiculous. And then he goes and he buys the field because he realized that the treasure was worth more than what he already had. And the same thing is true for the merchant and the pearl. Right? Pearls were the most valuable commodity, or at least one of them in the ancient world. And this merchant set out to find fine pearls. And on his quest, he probably found many of them. But then he finds the one. And in his joy, he willingly sells all the other pearls to have that one because he knew that one was worth more than all the other things he had acquired. Now, I want you to notice in these parables, and this is important, that the man who found the treasure and the merchant who found the pearl had already discovered the treasure before they sold everything. The parable hinges on us realizing that. Because they discovered the treasure, they stopped at nothing to secure it. They were glad to relinquish everything else in order to possess the treasure because they knew of its value. 
This is what it's like for those who have been given ears to hear by the Holy Spirit. It's what it's like for those who have been given eyes to see the kingdom. This parable is not saying that if you want to have Christ in his kingdom, you need to go do something radical to pay for the kingdom. That leads us down a road of just an endless spiral. We're not saying we have to do something radical to pay for the kingdom. Rather, what we are saying and what Jesus is saying in this parable is that those who have been given the kingdom by grace will look radically different. We don't do anything radical to pay for the kingdom. Seeing the value of the kingdom is what leads us to a path of radical living. People who have seen the kingdom will gladly relinquish anything that could prevent them from enjoying and knowing Christ. And we see this all over, all over the gospel accounts where people see Jesus and they willingly walk away from other things to have him. So a few things I think that seeing Jesus will lead us to let go of. A few thoughts, and there are others, but these are the ones that came to mind. One is our sin. This may be the easiest one that we would come up with. But if we want the kingdom, we need to be willing to take the road of its king. And that road was the cross. Romans 6 tells us that because of our union with Christ, we have died to sin. And because we have, we are to consider ourselves, literally to identify ourselves as being dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Folks, sin always is going to overpromise and underdeliver. It markets itself as being unbridled pleasure, but it's a cruel master and it has a hidden barb. That means that our only right response to sin is not self-pity. It's not coddling our sin. It's not justifying or minimizing our sin. We are to take up our cross and crucify the flesh and its desires daily. As Jesus says in Luke 14. Second thing I think we'll gladly let go of when we see Christ in his kingdom is our love of stuff. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is approached by a wealthy young man who wanted to follow him. And he was really confident. This young ruler, as he's called in scripture, comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him a few commands and says, well, keep these. And the man says, I've kept those since my youth. I'm like, okay, it's a bold move, bold move. And then Jesus says, okay, well, great. Why don't you go and sell everything you have to the poor or sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And the man walks away sad. Think about that, that this young man was staring at the Prince of Peace, the God who owned the cattle on a thousand hills, the king of the kingdom, and he simply could not bring himself to part with his treasure, his stuff. And how many times have we done the same thing? But friends, truly seeing the beauty of Jesus, his gospel and his kingdom makes temporal possessions look worthless by comparison. We may not be called to sell everything, but we might be. But whether we are or not, life in the kingdom will lead us to a radical reshuffling of our priorities. Third thing I think we'll gladly let go of to have the kingdom is our expectations of the king and his kingdom. Israel at large, and even Jesus' own disciples, his friends, those who followed him closely, totally misunderstood how the kingdom was going to arrive. People thought it would come in an incredible show of power and force where the enemies of God's people are shamed and vanquished. People like Peter thought this kingdom had arrived now and, had, and it had to be defended. You see this in the disciples that somehow it's like the kingdom's arrival and survival depended on them. 
And here in the U.S., I think that we see this happen to us very often in two areas, being our politics and our church growth strategies. We can be guilty of the same exact thing. It's good to be politically aware and even politically engaged to a certain degree. It's good to have strategies for our churches, but we need to be reminded that we cannot legislate the advance of God's kingdom. We can't vote it in. We can't strategize it in. It will continue to advance as discreetly, as Jesus said in an earlier parable in this chapter. It will continue to advance as discreetly as leaven working itself into a lump of dough. People walk by it and miss it day after day after day. But eventually the growth will be unmistakable. It won't be spectacular, but it'll be steady and it'll be inevitable. Fourth, the fourth thing we will renounce is our self-righteousness. Think about this merchant we said that he already had other pearls right he had valuable things in his possession that he had sought and bought for himself and upon seeing the great pearl beyond value he willingly sells those other pearls to have it the apostle paul in philippians gives sort of a short autobiography and in that he begins to give his resume his list of spiritual accomplishments he said he was a hebrew of hebrews a pharisee of pharisees As to the law, blameless. So zealous was he for the things of God that he persecuted the church violently. And then he met Jesus. And what does he say became of all these spiritual accomplishments? He literally uses what we would consider to be almost a cuss word. He says they are uh, rubbish. Literally dung. He said that's what became of all my spiritual accomplishments apart from Christ. I saw the righteousness that Jesus offered me, and it was so much better than anything I had worked for on my own. He said, I'll gladly give up all my good accomplishments and all the good things I've done because Christ's righteousness is better. When we see the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, the perfect righteousness that he clothes us in, the sonship we now enjoy, then we begin to see the emptiness of our religious resumes, all our striving apart from God's grace. We cast it aside. And like Paul, we just say, give me Christ. I don't want the rest of it. So now I would ask you, have you seen Jesus in this way? Have you seen his beauty and his glory in such a way that it made you start turning loose of things that you would have never dreamed of turning loose of before? We cannot have two masters. We cannot have a foot in two kingdoms. My hope is that we respond like the individuals in these parables. And I want you to notice, too, that in turning loose of things, Jesus does not ask us to turn loose of things because he is against your joy. He's not against your satisfaction or your fulfillment. He's not hoping you never find happiness or purpose. No, he actually calls us to let go of these things because he realizes that only in him do we actually find what we're looking for. He knows that he's the better treasure and he doesn't want you to settle for less. He wants you to have joy and have it to the full, but he knows it's only going to be found in him. So now let's look at our last point, which is joyfully receiving the kingdom or joyfully receiving the king and his kingdom. I want you to notice in these parables that the individuals did not stop at seeing the beauty of the treasure. They didn't stop and say, wow, that's, that's quite a pearl there. Man, look at that treasure. They didn't even stop at going and selling everything else and then hold on to their money. No, they actually went and purchased it. They possessed the treasure. They made it their own. 
See, we too are not simply called to turn loose of things. We're also given something to lay hold of, something to pursue. So what does it look like to have this treasure, this pearl of great price as our own? A couple of things. First, I want you to notice these two individuals. All right, you have the one who is stumbling through a field and happens upon a treasure. And you have another who's diligently seeking for the treasure and both find it. Right? Our testimony is going to be, maybe you're going to identify rather as more of a seeker. You've been looking for truth, diligently pursuing it, looking for meaning, looking for identity. And so you're going to search anywhere you can to find it. And maybe your testimony is, man, in the midst of that search, I found Jesus. That was the story of someone like C.S. Lewis. For others, maybe you were going through life quite content to live life just simply at the whim of your desires. You were the master of your own fate. You were having a good time with life. Then out of nowhere, Jesus comes and confronts you and knocks you off the horse, so to speak. For a lot of us, our testimony is probably a combination of both of those things. It's a mix of seeking and stumbling. But whether you're a skeptic, a seeker, or you stumbled upon Jesus, I want you to know that both your stumbling and your seeking are actually indications of God's Spirit at work mightily in you. The power of your testimony is not in whether or not you were a seeker or a stumbler, or to what degree you were of each of those things. The power of your testimony is in the fact that You belong to a different kingdom. You you were spiritually blind and God gave you eyes to see and ears to hear. You found the treasure because God showed you the treasure. And as these parables demonstrate, not everybody sees the treasure. Your testimony, no matter how it looks, is proof that God has been at work within you. And that's the miracle. Second thing that it looks like to take hold of the kingdom is in our seeking and stumbling We must remember that merely seeing the treasure is not enough. It must be possessed by faith. We have to lay hold of it. This is important for us, I think, especially as good Presbyterians that love to study theology and learn, is that it is not enough just to simply intellectually love the idea of the king or his kingdom. Intellectual assent is important, but it's not everything. Think about a chair. Right, I, I can mentally assent to the truth that I believe that chair will hold me up. And I can go on and on about how sturdy that chair looks and the engineering that went into it, the design of it. But if I don't actually sit in the chair, then I haven't trusted the chair. Now, what's really encouraging about that is the chair does not require my trust to be concrete. It doesn't require it to be great trust. I can be a shaking mess trying to sit in that chair, full of doubt that it's actually not going to hold me up. But sitting in the chair is actually all it takes because it holds me up, right? The same is true when we trust Jesus. Simply trusting him with the weight of our salvation, with the weight of our eternity, taking him at his word that in him is fullness of joy in life, even beset with doubts and failures and inconsistencies, The strength does not lie in our faith, in our trust, but actually in the one who upholds us. Our trust may be feeble, but he is not. Trust in Christ is how we receive the king and his kingdom. And then the third thing is we pursue the ethics of the kingdom. Those in the kingdom are called to live lives that reflect the values of this kingdom that they belong to now. And so if you want to look at the ethics that mark the people in Jesus' kingdom, read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. 
And what you'll find is that it cuts in two directions, these ethics of the kingdom, our love for God and our love for others. Jesus said it plainly in John 13, 35. He said that the defining mark of his community, his kingdom people, would be your love for one another. So they will know you by your love for one another, not by the strength of your arguments, not by the beauty of your buildings or anything else, but your love for one another. That's how we show the world that Jesus truly is alive, that he is truly our Lord We are united to Christ on the basis of our individual faith, but we are united to Christ with a multitude of other saints, joined together in him, united in him. And the local church, even Grace Fellowship right here, it serves as a visible outpost of this kingdom. It's imperfect. It's mixed. It's beset with sins, but it is still the instrument God has chosen to reveal himself to the world. If you want to experience the riches of God's kingdom, then friend, on this side of eternity, trust the king and love his people. Give yourself fully to Christ and to his church. Despite your fear of being known, of being inconvenienced, of being disappointed, maybe of being hurt again, give yourself to the people of God. Love one another at Grace Fellowship and beyond as Christ has loved you. Encourage one another. Confess to one another. Pray for one another. Serve alongside one another as you share the gospel and you make disciples. Apologize when you wrong somebody. Forgive one another. And know that it's going to be messy, but it will be so very worth it. Because one day the kingdom is going to be consummated. Sin will be removed from us forever. And we will experience the bliss of sinless communion with God and with one another. But until that day, we experience the breakthrough of the kingdom right here with other messy sinners who, like us, are in process. This is God's design for our good and for his glory. Lastly, and I want to close here. If you would flip over to Isaiah 55, Isaiah 55, 1. There's one thing that we haven't mentioned yet about this parable, and you're thinking, how in the world is that possible? The field was owned by someone else. The pearl was owned by someone else. And you may be asking, well, what does it cost? If we're going to take this treasure for ourselves, what does it cost? I want you to hear God's gracious invitation to us from Isaiah 55, verse 1. He says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You want know what the treasure costs? You want to know if the guy who owns the treasure is willing to sell? The answer to that question is yes. But what does it cost? It costs everything, but not from you. When we go to God, wanting to be in his kingdom, hey, again, remember, it's because God's revealed that kingdom to you. But B, what we find when we get there is that someone else has already paid that price in full to make that kingdom yours. The treasure has been bought already for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. That price was paid in full at Calvary. 
If you want the kingdom for yourself now, you do not need your best works. You do not need any illusion that you are good enough or that you can help God in some way. You don't need your wealth and your possessions. You don't need the sins that bring you comfort. What you need is to come with an empty hand. An empty hand that simply receives Christ by faith and that kingdom becomes yours. Because we serve a merciful God who delights to give the kingdom to his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess so often that we do not see your kingdom this way. We do not see Jesus this way. Lord, rather than treating him as the treasure of our lives, he's an afterthought most days. Lord, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to value the king and his kingdom. That we would receive Jesus by faith and enjoy the benefits that flow from our union with him. Lord, you help us to welcome one another, to love one another as Christ has loved us. That the realities of this kingdom would be manifest right here at Grace Fellowship in these people. Lord, I pray that a watching world would see it and be drawn to it. Because love like that just couldn't come from anywhere but you. Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us?